Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. These panels have been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and Metatopia 2021. Episode 339, Designing Rewarding Game Experiences. Presented by Beth Rimmels, Senfung Lim, and Gwendolyn Marshall. Hey everybody, we're here at Metatopia and we're live with this next panel. This panel is on designing rewarding game experiences. My name is Sen Fung Lim. I use he, him pronouns. I'm a psychology professor and game designer from London, Ontario, Canada. And you might know me from such games as, I don't know, uh, Avatar Legends, Jiangshi, Blood in the Banquet Hall, Kingdom Rush, uh, Scooby-Doo, all sorts of games. So I do lots of games and board games card games, and role-playing games. And I'm going to pass it on to my co-conspirators, Gwen and Beth. Gwen, do you want to go next? Uh, sure. Uh, hi, I'm Gwen Marshall, uh, pronouns she, her. Uh, I am a philosophy professor by day, and by night I also design role-playing games. Uh, I'm co-owner of Arcanist Press. Uh, you might know me from two-time Emmy Award-winning. That's the first time I've got to say that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, supplement uh, Ancestry and Culture, an alternative to race in 5e, uh, as well as a superhero game called S5e Superheroic Roleplaying. And uh, we'll see what's next. And I am Beth Rimmels, pronouns she, her. Uh, my day job is as a marketing copywriter and uh, content manager. Uh, so all about the marketing. But I've also been a uh, game industry freelancer and game designer ranging from Say Book 7, Kings River Bridge, up to my most recent credit is uh, Kids on Bikes, uh, Strange Adventures, Volume 2, um, and design my own game, Awesome 8, and uh, lots of other... Oh, and I also am a game uh, reviewer for N-World, where I review all your D&D products. So. So, Wonderful. Uh, yeah, I'm Lucas Cohn. I'm he, him. I'll be just... Facilitating, getting time checks, uh, getting comments from people in chat. If you have any questions for our panelists, do put them in chat, and I'll bring them to them eventually. Excellent. Thanks so much, Lucas. So let's get this started. Um, we're talking about designing for positive, rewarding game experiences. What does that even mean? <laughs> I'm gonna ask. I'm gonna ask Gwen. <laughs> Because you're like, I'm the philosophy professor. I need to philosophize about this stuff. Go ahead. Give us the, the spiel. So, uh, okay. That's a big setup. All right. Um, po designing positive game experiences. So I'd like to start with definitions, right? So we're talking about designing, not just running games. So some of the things we might be interested in are, are really the tools that a, someone writing content for others to run uh, would use, as opposed to a GM or facilitator of some sort at a table. 
So that's one important distinction. Uh, second, we are not specifying what kind of designing. So this one kind of designing that has one set of approaches is going to be when you design a system, right? You might try to incorporate, create mechanics to facilitate a certain sort of experience in the game, right? Uh, you incentivize certain behaviors and not others, for example. That's a way to design towards kinds of experiences, maybe. Uh, but you might also be designing content for a different system, right? You might be writing an adventure or a supplement. And then, then you have to use slightly different tools because there are some mechanics that are already present and you can choose how to use or, or not use those contents. So that's different ways of designing uh, that we might be interested in. Uh, now, these are game experiences. I'll focus on the noun first, experiences. Uh, well, these are going to be the way people feel and the things that they uh, see here, taste, touch, smell, and well, feel while playing or uh, experiencing the game that you've or the content that you've written uh, and created. Uh, so we want to talk about what the effects are on the players, including any GM or facilitator that might be involved. So we're talking about creating game content, systems or, or supplements, to create, uh, to have impacts on the people using it at the table, specifically around how, how it makes them feel, probably. So those are going to be designing game experiences, because we're designing games towards these experiences. Positive, that one's tougher. So we don't mean just happy or positive affect. We, we mean something else, something deeper, uh, something maybe like fulfillment or sub substantial or rewarding. So uh, Sinfong, you mentioned a little bit about this when you, you kind of even you know, included uh, designing positive well, or maybe rewarding experiences when you introduce the title today. Um, and I know that maybe talking a little bit more about what does it mean for a player to have a positive experience, uh, it might be something in your wheelhouse as a psychology professor. Sure. Um, so there's so many ways to define a positive experience uh, or a rewarding experience or an engaging experience. I mean, uh, we tend to use the term engagement in board games uh, more than positive or fun even um, in the design circles. We talk about um, engagement uh, as a meaningful use of time, as a uh, time well spent uh, that you would have not rather spent it another way. And I think that to me, um, speaking of one of my, uh, not my mentor necessarily, but I, I this, uh, so Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi just passed away this week, actually, uh, and flow uh, was the big, big theory that uh, he um, described and uh, you know, perpetuated throughout the ethos of uh, the kind of psychology that I practice. And um, that is exactly what I look for in a, a positive experience or rewarding experiences, really that meaningful engagement in a task where you don't realize the time is passing. Uh, that's sort of the high-level metric that I'm talking about personally. Uh, that's what I want to be engaged in, and that's what I try to design when I engage for uh, you know, other people in a game. Beth, what do you think about engagement versus fun, and what's a positive type of experience for you? See, coming from the RPG side, um, I look at it more as satisfying. Um, because it's not necessarily that, again, as we've said, it's not necessarily positive as in, oh, you win everything, yay! Um, but it is that you have a satisfying play experience, you have a satisfying emotional experience, you have a satisfying role play experience. 
And that can even mean your character dies sometimes. You know, I've had characters die, but the circumstances of it were very fulfilling and satisfying because they were fulfilling their potential or they did something, you know, to sacrifice. So, you know, it, it's not a case of, you know, oh, your character died, so therefore it's terrible. No, that can be incredibly satisfying. So that's why I tend to use that adjective yeah, um, a little bit more. Um, but again, yeah, it's about sending the right signals to the players so that they are having the right type of game experience and, and you know, playing back and forth with those signals to make sure everyone is engaged, um, everyone is having, like I said, rewarding experience, a satisfying experience, even if you're putting their players figuratively or literally through hell, you know, right. as far as what they're trying to achieve and, and uh, accomplish. And even sometimes with RPGs, it may absolutely be a no-win scenario, but they go, they know going in that's a possibility, so it's not going to crush them. And that's where it's setting up yeah. the expectations. Yeah, that's, we were talking about that before. Uh, Gwen, you have your, your finger ready as if you're about to profess. So go, go right ahead and profess. You know, when I profess, normally I like to pace while I'm talking, you know, and do one of these, but I'll sit. So do I when I teach adult ed, but we can't pace here, unfortunately. <laughs> I know, right? But um, I really, I wanted to uh, expand on something that Beth said about uh, uh, meeting expectations. And I think one way to successfully design towards positive experiences is to include elements or instructions in your design that can help the players, GM included, have their expectations up, uh, uh, fit the expected outcomes of the game. So you don't start off with, for example, kind of comedy tropes in a game that you want to kill all the players, or you know, you want that to be a positive, a possible outcome, right? Where everyone dies, or it's a, everyone is, you know, corrupted by the, you know, the darkness or whatever. So, you know, you, uh, managing expectations, I think, is going to be one element of designing positive experiences. You want to, people to know what kinds of experiences they're getting in. That having been said, one way to create a positive experience is to very cleverly defy expectations as well. Yeah. And I think it's just like going, I mean, many other forms of, of uh, like aesthetic experiences, like going to watch a movie or read a book, right, or listen to music. You know, there might be that there's a sudden weird genre shift in the middle, and if it's done really well, it can be amazing. But most of the time, you, you know, you present a good novel by letting people kind of know somehow or another that this is going to be this kind of novel, and then they get what they want, so to speak, or you demonstrate that you know you meet those expectations or exceed them. So maybe one way of thinking about this is about uh, fulfilling ec or exceeding certain sorts of expectations. Because if you want one thing, even if it's done well, or I mean, and you get the other thing, even if the other thing is done well, it might not be the experience you want. Yeah, uh, just from personal experience, uh, I'm a big fan of animation and specifically Japanese animation and very specifically uh, big mecha. I love mecha anime because I grew up with it as a kid. And the problem with most games that try to portray um, mecha is that they don't feel like Japanese mecha. They feel like tanks on legs, um, like Battletech style. And for me, that isn't mecha. Uh, and so I'm continuously let down by games that, you know, say, oh, it's a, you know, reminiscent of Japanese animation. It's like, well, I mean, visually, yeah, but 
the system doesn't support that, right? And so um, in therapy, we talk about this as a just right fit. Uh, what's the just right fit for the therapeutic modality that we're using with the person that we're, we're supporting or the, treating? And a lot of times, uh, if you don't get fit, you don't have buy-in. If you don't have buy-in, you get disengagement. If you have disengagement, nobody's having any fun whatsoever, whether it's the, the therapist or the, the uh, person being treated. Uh, and the same with a game, right? If you think of not, don't think of games as therapy. Please, please don't think that. Um, that's a whole other discussion that we can have at some other time. Uh, but the idea that when you go into a movie, when you go into any thing that you're consuming and a game is something you're consuming and in fact even more so you're part of it right um you you really need to have that buy-in that expectation that gets met and i really do like what gwen you said about subversion so subversion of expectation has to be clever has to be you know sometimes even subtle and then sometimes really full force in your face like boom we're subverting this to be uh effective um, because that's that is that kind of thing that differentiates uh, just a game from the game, like the game you want to talk about, the game you want to play, the game you want to, you know, buy more supplements for. Um, and I, I think a lot of that stuff in terms of creating that opportunity for just right fit um, with your play style and your play needs uh, in terms of your psychographic, in terms of how you play a game, uh, what you're looking for, you know, is it engagement, is it mastery, is it, um, you know, systems, is it whatever you're looking for, does this game meet that? How do, how do we as designers present this to people in a way that tells them this game can do that thing for you, but it doesn't do these other things? Right. So actually, Beth, as a marketer, how do you do that? How do you tell everybody is, that it can that do these is things? One, I was going to say that is one of the challenges. And of course, it's also really tricky in the game industry because most game designers or uh, game companies are on the small side. It's not like we're Unilever, you know, or Procter & Gamble where you have this giant marketing team and all these branding experts. Or Disney's actually a perfect example of, of you know, how to do it well. They know how to target their exact audiences and set those expectations. Um, for a smaller company or a solo game designer, it's much harder because what you think is cool, and so therefore that's what you're conveying through the marketing copy and the description of the game, might not set the right expectations for your players. And that's where you need that extra set of eyes. Um, and that's also where playtesting comes in very much because you have the coolest game in the world, but if the experience you're getting from people playtesting and their feedback is highlighting something else, good or bad, it could be that they love this thing that you're not highlighting, that's where you can you know, try to course correct and, again, use that in the marketing material, use that in the back of the box description or the back of the book blurb or something, um, again, to try and set those expectations because... I think everybody has picked up some book, some game, whatever, thinking it was one thing, and it ended up being something else. You know, you don't want to have that comedy four-color cover, and but this is a dark and gray, you know, serious game, and you know, you're 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 battling for your psyche or something like that. You're not saying proper expectations, though. So it's about yeah. you know learning to match them, 
And sometimes you may need the outside perspective as a small company or, or an independent game designer um, to make sure that what makes your game unique and what makes your game interesting matches what you're describing and the expectation you're setting. That makes a lot of sense. We had this one game <laughs> that uh, we had pitched it. We were pitching it to a publisher, actually, and we're like, yeah, it's this game about juggling, and you're juggling like increasingly harder things like fire and chainsaws, and then the, the hardest thing was like kittens. You're juggling kittens. And they were like, oh, that sounds great. Let's play this. And we played the game. And like, then like, you know, maybe a hand into the game, like, you're like you know, no, we're going to stop. I was, oh, what's wrong? And said, well... You know, it might be a very good game. It seems like it's well made, but you sold us a bill of goods. Like you told us it was going to be, you know, this fun game about juggling cats. <laughs> and um, it was like a tactical card game. And like, that's not what we were expecting. And so no matter how good the game is, it's a pass, right? Because they were told something and they experienced something else. And that wasn't for them a good fit right? That just right fit wasn't there. They were looking for something different and we told them it was something different. So from a design perspective, um, you know, what can we do as designers to really make sure that all the pieces, and there's many of them, are talking to each other? So in our little uh, Google Doc over here, I think Gwen, you wrote, you know, mechanics versus metagame elements. Can you expand on that? Because I think that's really, really a neat thing and very much part of role-playing games. But we're starting to see some of that hybridization across into uh, board gaming as well. So go ahead and fill us in. Right, so I, I was thinking first the abstract, right? What is a positive gaming experience and so on? But then my brain shifted from college professor to game designer. It's like, well, what, is it, what are the nuts and bolts here to create that an experience of such? What, are, what would I write in the, in the empty Word document, right? Like, what, what's the, how does it actually work when the rubber hits the road? And it really two different kinds of things kept coming up as I was thinking about this. One is... Game mechanics, the things that you do when you play the game, uh, generate particular responses, or tend to incentivize particular behaviors, etc. in players. Uh, you know, if there's scarcity mechanics, that creates tension, right? If there's collaboration or competition, that can create different experiences at the game and uh, at the table. And that's about what mechanics you choose and create. Uh, but then there's metagame elements, which can be introduced and you can guide through guidance written uh, that are, are outside of the rules that introduce the game or give advice to the game master or facilitator. And some clever games do like to try to create mechanics to incentivize metagame attitudes and behaviors. Uh, some that came to mind in the role-playing game space are things like safety tools and session zeros, but also ways to talk about the game that are not within the game, ways where we step back and talk player to player rather than if in a role-playing game character to character, or instead of engaging with the mechanics of the board game to advance the turn, we might step back and strategize as players about how we'd like this game to unfold. Right? So you can design mechanics that target the player experience either through either kind of either from bottom up, if you will, mechanics up yeah. or top down, right? I like that. I like that point of bottom up versus top down. Uh, so if we're talking 
bottom up. We're talking like strictly this mechanic is doing this thing and it's incentivizing you through reward and punishment and, you know, carrots and sticks and operant conditioning and whatnot. But from the top down, now we're looking at this as a social you, right? This is a social thing. We are engaged in this as, in, in our case, three people playing a game together. What do we want this to become? Um, board games are a little more static and a little more structured. Um, role-playing games, we get to decide all that kind of stuff. So uh, I think there's a lot more of that stuff in role-playing games, but we see it coming into board games in terms of there are a lot of hybrid like story ty- storytelling plus board game things. Uh, even you know social games where it's like a social role deduction type game um you can pick you know is there going to be a traitor is there not going to be a traitor you know how how much how hard do we want to play uh this cooperative game you know what are we going to set the difficulty level at so there are some meta tools that are mechanically you know put in the game but it's a meta element that uh we get to play with and decide as players and and i really like um what you're talking about when you're talking about you know setting safety tools we're starting to see that in board games as well um just you know what are you in what are you playing this game for why do you why do you play games and understanding each other and that it's it's this funny thing where uh you know uh, we're supposed to get out of our egocentrism, you know, once we pass through um, adolescence. But for some reason, you know, people are very still egocentric. Uh, and um, we have to realize when we play games, unless we're playing solo, we're playing with other people. And what makes our experience and our engagement positive isn't necessarily the same for other people. And I, I, I don't know why there's so much backlash against safety tools or calibration tools might even be a better term for them because all we're doing is getting on the same page so that we can start telling our story together. That's how I view it. How do you view it, Beth? What do you think about calibration tools, safety tools, and things like that? I love them, and I'm a firm believer in session zero, and I'm also starting to come to the conclusion that, uh, at least, again, on the RPG side, that... If you're talking a long campaign, uh, it also may not hurt to sometimes touch base mid-campaign. Oh, I don't know, sure. that would be a session, you know, whatever. Um, but just to kind of make sure, you know, touch base and make sure expectations are, are being met and, and everybody's kind of satisfied. As far as why people hate them and they're controversial, and as a writer for N-World, we see this in the forums. You know, there, there are people who the minute you mention safety tool, oh, are you trying to ruin my game? Um, and then, obviously, people also sticking up for them. Um, I think part of it is a misunderstanding and the explanations either aren't penetrating or they just don't want to hear the explanations. Because to their mind, uh, things like discussing um the like if you're doing a horror game for example um discussing the level of gore and the type of horror that you're going to do um they feel that as oh you're taking toys away from me so i can't tell my story no it's as you said it's calibration technique to make sure that the story you're creating fits with what your players are interested in you know if my level of horror is halloween town and twitches I don't want to be in an RPG that is the equivalent of the movie Hostel. Oh not going to be a good fit, yeah. and vice versa. <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, exactly. But but that's where, you know, it's the whole calibration thing, but they see it as taking things away yeah. as yeah. opposed to making sure things are in alignment. Right. And some people just don't want to hear the explanation, and that is what frustrates me. Because some you can bring around. Um, yeah, that sounds right. And I think your reference to the movies are really great here, actually, because we have this. This is the thing about many people that react negatively to safety tools is they already do that kind of behavior in many other areas of their lives. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. If you if you were sitting down with some friends to watch a movie, uh, you know, on Netflix or whatever, uh, you or in the olden days, you'd go to the stand in front of the box office and decide what mm -hmm. do you want to watch. Um, it's totally normal to turn to the person and say, would you like to see a horror film? Are we that old? We are that old. We? <laughs> we are that well, old. That's the real the horror story. Times. That is the real yeah. horror story, my friends. I have expected you to say standing at Blockbuster trying to pick the video, but also, that's, that also, made me also, myself. <laughs> I did work in one of those stores once long ago. But anyway, um, so uh, – but, you know, you normally just ask somebody, what are you in the mood for? And if they say, uh, I don't want to, you know, I'm not in the mood for horror tonight. Or if they say, let's watch a horror movie, but I don't like that, that like, that, that torture porn, like, Saw movies. I don't like that. Let's watch something that's creepy instead. You know, that's natural. Or if you sit down with somebody to, at dinner, here's maybe a more apt analogy to the gaming experience. If you sit down to uh, go out to a restaurant and you, you say, hey, let's share a dish. And they say, well, I'm sorry, I, I'm allergic to shellfish. So just as long as you don't put shellfish in my food, which would like, give me an unavoidable, negative, unhealthy reaction, then we're good. That's just a natural thing you do. That's just human decency. So if I tell you that I have a reaction, a negative reaction, like uh, it would cause me – it would like trigger a trauma or make me uncomfortable or ruin my fun just in general to have some sort of content in a game, why would you not – this is a shared experience, right? As, and I think that one thing to think of, keep in mind when we're designing for these positive experiences is that there is a social contract, and it's usually uh, implicit, but session zeros and safety tools can uh, – and some specific conscious design can make that more apparent to the players. Mm -hmm. So we have a quick question on that. Sure. We've talked a lot about the, the social aspect of the relational elements of this so far. We have um, one person asking about – if any of you are aware of empirical research or in some manner to this degree about what leads to higher player satisfaction, about how these tools create effects, and because they can think of a lot of anecdotal examples, and it seems like the panel's gone through several, but is are we at more at a point where this is an art, or is, is this a science that has research for it? So uh, are we talking specifically about safety tools? Um, I'm a, this was I, more I, in general, but yeah. So, I mean, in, in general, um, we could probably find data out there that supports what we're saying. You can probably find data out there that supports anything that you say, to be honest, uh, if you look hard enough. Um, but um, the the idea of, uh, you know, what works to get people uh, engaged and on the same page, uh, I, I think, is trending towards a science. Um, there are tried and true techniques uh, that, you know, is it's more than anecdotal when, you know, a large percentage of a population agrees that it, it works the way it works, right? So consensus building, really, right? And, and so that's the other thing. I mean, like, consensus building is a really powerful tool um, in terms of 
what we do as an art, less as a science consensus building and science don't really necessarily go together. Um, but with as an art form, uh, if you can get consensus around a table, if you can get consensus at a convention, if you can get consensus in an industry, then that just means that more people than not agree, right? That's all consensus is. And uh, that's how you change culture is through consensus, not through 100% of everybody doing everything exactly the same way. Uh, so I don't think that really answered your question, <laughs> uh, but I don't really know if there's an actual answer for that. Um, there are definitely people in not this panel per se necessarily, but in other panels who actually are in the field of study of, you know, research of RPGs, and that may be a better question to ask them. Um, so, yeah, is, it, is there scientific data that backs that up? I'd, I'd have to go look for something, or at least something that has a corollary to it, because I'm sure I could find something that's pretty similar. Yeah, I was going to add, there again, as you said, there's probably the research, you just have to dig for it. There is more, and it's growing, in, um, academic studies of games, of both board games and RPGs. Um, so even if you find research that isn't an exact fit right now, give it a year or two and, and it may be more easily accessible. Also, too, you may find some of these points in um, the team building side of, you know, life uh, because there's corporate team building uses a lot of games and some of it is based on, you know, game theory, again, to facilitate uh, social experiences and interactions to help people understand, develop consensus, you know, whatever the goals of the team building are. So there's probably research there that yeah. would be highly similar. That's where I would go look as an organizational behavior literature. It's yeah. just not my field of study, so I don't know it off the top of my head. Yeah, ask not, about, not ask my about little either. kids. I know that off the top of my head. <laughs> Little kids who can't speak or write. That's exactly what I know off the top of my head. Do we have any other questions, Lucas? Well, uh, to a degree on that point, you were, you were mentioning metagame involvement before and kind of not just looking at the game, but how you talk about the game, how you interact with it as a group. And I'm wondering about a step above that where... You, but with you know the internet, of course, but also how people treat games. It's not. It's never just the game. It's the discussion with your friends. It's the situations you'll play the game in. You're mentioning board games. I know, for example, Root as a board game has many, many different people making alternate uh, factions, and there's discussions about it online, and that becomes a whole level of engagement that pushes people to play in the first place. Yeah. And so, wondering that level of the metagame, of how do you design for that, either on the game design side or the social engineering side? Yeah, on the game design side, I, I think that has to do with, um, you know, SRDs, um, letting people hack. Games is a wonderful way to get people into design, but also a really good way to build community, um, right? And so, so for a lot of people probably all three of us, because we're constant con-goers, the, the social aspect of gaming is a big part of that positive experience, right? I would play video games by myself if I just wanted to play games. I don't just want to play games. I want to play games with people. Uh, as a GM, I, I just answered this yesterday on Twitter. They said, you know, explain your GM style in five words. And I said, biggest fan of the players. That's my GM style. 
Like I am totally, I want to see my friends do wonderful, weird, fun things and tell great stories. That's my, that's my job as a GM. That's what I think it is. Um, and so, you know, I, I think the idea of building community around that kind of stuff. And the thing about community is can be very, lots of different things, right? So uh, Root, for example, because you brought it up, is great because it has a really approachable art style. It's not like, like people could draw like that. You know, Kyle draws amazing stuff, but other people could draw that style of thing without having to be like Quan Chai Moria or somebody like who does like a very different painterly style of stuff. Um, the other thing is that, you know, they're the company leader games, uh, very good friends of mine just kind of said, yeah, do stuff. As long as you don't infringe on copyright, do stuff, uh, which is a very fair way of doing stuff uh, that, um, you know, I think the board game industry is not as ahead on that as, say, the RPG industry or the video game industry either, right? If you look at the uh, site for Supergiant, if, I think Supergiant makes Hades. Whoever makes Hades, yeah. they have a huge like uh, page on what you can do, and it's like almost anything except monetization of stuff. You're allowed to kind of draw stuff and make things and, you know, slash fic or whatever you want to do, do it. Because they just love their their world they created. And Root is kind of handled similarly, uh, whereas some other companies are very protective of their, of their stuff. But anyways, the idea of design or purposefully doing something so that you can build community, uh, some people have definitely done that in their games where they say, you know, um, here's exactly how the sausage is made. And they, they give you the whole, you know, all the equations and all the things and you can go do with it what you will. And they'll say, Hey, we have a site where you can post your stuff. Um, and that's great. I think that's a wonderful way of doing it. So if you can design something that other people can design with, not only are you, uh, having like content just auto generate for your system uh but you're encouraging the design community and then the play community around that the art community around that uh and it becomes this wonderful wonderful thing um which is you know why things like this exist poof this 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 thing right here masks exist because Vincent and Meg said go ahead and do whatever you want with PBA right. right and so there was yeah. a huge shift i think in how uh, we hacked stuff when people um, like Vincent and Meg said, yeah, hack it, make it something interesting and new. Uh, and I think that's the way that we can get even higher level than just the meta of the play table when it's like from a industry perspective or at least one company's perspective of how they design for positive experiences. It's like, let's make this the thing that you can then mutate into your own thing uh, and just trace lineage back. That's all we care about is like that you maybe acknowledge that it was a PPTA game uh, or a Forge in the Dark game or whatever other SRD you're using, a 5E thing, and, and go for it. And I think that's, that's really a wonderful thing about RPGs specifically. Board games, like I said, are not really quite there yet. Although, I will say that I got my start in design by group and I'm going to age myself completely on rec.cards.magic.com 
game. Uh, if you know what that is, you are old as F, uh, like me. Um, and we just designed new sets of magic cards on Usenet in text yep. with no pictures. <laughs> Say, oh, right. yeah, I would just design this, you know, Cobold uh, Warrior, because there's no Cobold Warrior in, in the Alpha and Beta set. Cobold Warriors are a 1-1 creature that costs 1 red plus 1 uh, colorless mana, and this is what they do. And by designing, uh, by, by having a system that you could hack uh, and make without consequence, because, you know, Richard Garfield's not going to chase me down, uh, and we're, nobody's going to make these cards anyways, uh, or sell them, we could learn how to design, and we created community around that, uh, which got me deeper into magic, so much so that I you know, had to sell all my magic cards or else I wouldn't be here today. <laughs> I, would right. be, I would be actually probably richer than I am now, though. Right. So, yeah, same questions yeah. to Gwen and Beth. Oh, yeah, uh, no. It, Beth, do you want to go first? Uh, well, I was going to say, could you repeat the question now, because we've kind of wandered around and I've oh, had yeah, other thoughts. <laughs> Sorry, it was pretty much captured. It's the, the metagame beyond the talking about the direct game, the thing that forms around that game, and how do you design for that both within game design and within you know marketing, within social construction, that kind of stuff. Okay, so from the RPG side, um, you can do that a couple different ways. First of all, RPGs are kind of naturally, uh, maybe not naturally designed for community, but they're definitely designed so that they can be very hackable, um, that you can, you know, tear them apart. Everybody has house rules and things like that. Um, so you can change things around. Uh, for the building the community side, um, if there already is a organized play program, that can help with building community. And, of course, there's already fandoms out there for all kinds of RPGs and things like that. Um, really, though. I'm going to come back to, again, session zeros and safety tools because that, again, helps you set the expectations for everything. And then that helps to build a reputation because um, you, assuming that you aren't just you playing with the same five friends all the time and you're part of a larger community, um, if you come up with cool scenarios, if you run good games, you're going to get a reputation for it. Um, but you're not going to get that reputation by being a jerk. So that's where it comes back to saying the good expectations and saying the play point. Kind of step aside from just thinking about what we were saying before. Um, some big companies have failed at saying expectations for games. Um, for example, I can think of one uh, official 5e game um, that the, the entire well, I should say the entire point of the game. It was very clear. The designers wanted the players to spend a lot of time in exploration. They, I mean, yes, there was also going to be combat and, and everything else in the three pillars of D&D. But it was clear that for this adventure, exploration was going to be a big part of the game. And then they put a death clock on the game so that the players had to rush things in order right. to survive. And that's where sometimes you can be counterproductive in your game design and send the wrong signals. Technically, they did have a way in there that as players died, you know, they could suddenly have somebody else pop up, but that's not going to be as fulfilling. And it's still this onus on the exploration. So you're designing this 
big palette for them to explore and then impeding their feeling that they can explore because oh, the least little thing happens, I'm under this curse and I'm going to drain away hit points and I'm going to die very quickly. So that's where also too with game design, it's saying expectations between you and the players, but sometimes you have to clarify your own expectations. You know, if you want them to explore, don't push a time element on it or do a very different time element. And if you want that pressure of, they got to do this quickly, don't design the game for exploration. I mean, that all sounds right to me. Uh, I'd like to add just a slightly different angle to it. So it sounds like, you know, I mean, some of the things that you were talking about at the end there, Beth, were are kind of, they're a different kind of metagame decision, discussion. Like one is mechanics the players actually do, and then there's more like design principles that you, or design goals that you're bringing to the uh, game when you design it. Because uh, you're trying to create these particular kinds of experiences at the table, and then there's the different. Then earlier you mentioned things like safety tools, and that's like a kind of a meta game element where people mm-hmm. are talking about the game uh, before playing the game or while playing the game. Uh, I w- and then uh, you know, and then uh, Sanfong, you talked about like, well, you can go give, make it hackable by communities like PBTA or Blades in the Dark or Five uh, E's OGL. Um, uh, I'm going to try and shoot in between those two, right? Very Good. near the table or very near the industry-wide thing. And that's let's talk a little bit about ways to, to generate things that are actual game mechanics but that hook into what communities are doing, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So this isn't like, go hack my game. This is, here's a part of the game where you leave an empty space that has to be filled in by something people are doing at other tables or in other places or as a community, Right. So the perfect example of this, I mean, you mentioned organized play briefly, Beth, but are there are things called epics that Dungeons and Dragons and some other organized play uh, systems put forward where you play the game at your table. But what happens to the overarching narrative depends on what everyone does collectively. Mm -hmm. Right. So by so that's just one mechanic off the top of my head. Another one is, again, is kind of in between this is uh, uh, some video games like uh, Neverwinter Nights. Right. Uh, It's shipped with a set of design tools so you can play the game or or in addition, you can then like make additional levels or dungeons and then your characters can go through them and level up and get new stuff and then keep going, you know, go play the game. But then they, you can also share them with other people. And so you can play other people's levels. Lots of video game companies do this sort of thing too. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, I don't see it as often in, it does happen sometimes in role-playing games with certain forms of organized play. I, I don't know about instances of that sort of thing in board games, but I could imagine a situation where like some of the legacy games, instead of writing on the card, like what happened at your table, you look at a report about like, well, you know, like in the first month of playtesting this game or of playing this game, 70% of the people made this choice. So you write it down on your card at on your house, this sort of thing. You know, like you could imagine mechanics that are happening at the table level that nevertheless are re- responsive to community-wide events that could maybe be that kind of thing that the original question was looking for. Yeah, I think that'd be really cool. Um, it'd be interesting to implement it in any in any sense, right? That'd be really cool. Um, I just 
I just totally thought while you're talking, Beth, about uh, fourth edition. Fourth edition for me was this huge, weird letdown, but also really weirdly positive um, because I play a lot of tactical miniatures games and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so fourth edition for me was this strange, strange beast that didn't meet my expectations only because it had the words Dungeons & Dragons on it. If it was called anything else almost, or Dungeons & Dragons colon something else, mm-hmm. I think it would have done better. I think it would have yeah. done better because uh, yeah. it actually is a decent tactical system. It's just not role-playing-ish. It was weird. Anyway, if you've never played 4E, um, check it out. <laughs> yeah. Kind of in that vein. And, oh, in, if you had something to say, Beth, I can okay, jump no, to a question ahead. after that. Yeah, in no, that no, vein, and going back to something in the introduction, we have a question asking about how some of your favorite examples of games that create warding experiences out of those more negative interactions where they use that dissonance between what should be expected and what would be usually negative like horror or like uh, comedy in very dark situations or so character death what are some of your favorite examples of games that successfully make those negative elements rewarding go ahead Gwen Uh, immediately the first one that came to mind was the role playing game Paranoia oh yeah yeah, that's a good one. So in Paranoia, if you don't know, um, you are uh, you're in this futuristic dystopia controlled by a master computer that's always watching, and there's this It's toxic watching you right positive, now, right now. It is. Friend computer is watching you. Uh, it is uh, uh, full of, like, this weird toxic positivity that you're supposed to be a big fan of the computer, and let's go help. You're but not a fan of, of the computer? Co- of course you are, right? I always do what I'm supposed to, right? So, uh, but the, the fun, one of the great things about it is you go into the game if you ha- have read it or if anyone's prepped you, like, okay, let me tell you how this game works, or you learn play through playing, that uh, it's never going to go well. It's basically, Fiasco is another classic example. It's like a Coen Brothers movie, but this one, if you mess up, the, friend, the computer disintegrates you, and you might think, oh, no, character death, but then, thump, right, a nearby tube opens and a clone of you pops in, and I think in some, depending on which version you get, maybe you have five or an endless number or whatever. But the point is not to win in that sense, right? And so that's a, a, one example uh, that comes to mind for sure. Uh, Dread is another really good example of a game that subverts the idea of death being a bad thing. Um, and it does it in a really wonderful way. Dread is probably like my... If I was to to be able to pick... Uh, a role-playing game for people to play as adults for the first time or teenagers for the first time, it would probably be Dread over Dungeons & Dragons, to be honest. It's such a a simple, visceral system that really heightens experience, right? It It is literally you're experiencing that trepidation of pulling that block out and putting it on top, and oh my god, what's gonna happen? If I, ah, right? And you can watch the tower, you see it kind of waving back and forth. Um, I play with a lot of really good Jenga players, and it's pretty funny because we can get the tower really stacked, and then everything has gravitas. Everything has meaning now. Every decision, you have to be wondering, is that GM going to make me make a pull or not? (laughs) Because I'm just walking down the street, dude. Don't make me make a pull for walking down the street. (laughs) Um, And I I really do like Dread for, for that idea of it is one of the most engaging things. Like, I've, I don't think I've ever run a Dread game where all the players weren't engaged in their turn, in another person's turn, and in life and in death. Everything was just engaging. 
so Dread really brings that out because of the physicality of it. Beth, you have any thoughts there or want to jump to another question? I'm trying to think. And the thing is, it's some of the, the ones I can think of are more, it's more in the campaign level that we give as examples, which would not be nearly as illuminate uh, for people, not so much on the actual game level, which is why also I'm a little distracted because as, um, as everybody else was talking, forget which one of the two of you made a comment, but now you've inspired me. I've got a setting idea in the back of my head. <laughs> to work on, <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, um, I'm trying to think as far as a game that does it, and I'm just coming up blank today. So clearly, I haven't had enough caffeine today. So, <laughs> if you want to go to another question, I mean, actually, not necessarily a question, but building on this, what would be then the process you would use to? answer this question for yourself. Like, say you're trying to design a game that uses a, that has a rewarding experience through its design inherently. What is the step-by-step process you use? Like, maybe we could come up with an example here, but like, you know, what is the core pitch? Then how do you develop on it? How do you get to a point where you have a, a, where expectations are fit in the description? Oh, okay. Yeah. So for me, how I do that is I'm an experienced first designer, like all the time. I think about the experience that I want people to have. Uh, and I view games as boxed experiences. That's what I think of them as, um, or experiences in a package or whatever. And so I start high level, high level, high level. How do I want people to feel? And then I say, okay, well, what do I want them to do in order to feel that? And where do I want them to be in order to feel that? Uh, so I have a theory. <laughs> this is my theory. Sen's theory of experiential game design is a house. And Beth, you might have seen me post about this at some point on my on my Facebook page. But uh, the roof of the house is the experience because that's what you see from a far distance. It's at the top down. That's what I want you to really talk about when you talk about the game is how you felt while you were playing it. What did you... Not necessarily what you did, but how did you feel about the experience, the roof? And that roof needs to be supported, otherwise it's not a very good roof. And what supports it? Uh, in board games, it's usually what we call theme or setting or whatever, all the, all the stuff around that, time, place stuff. And then mechanics or mechanisms. And you'll say, Sen, how does it work that a, those two walls can hold up the roof? And I say, it doesn't. It needs two other walls. And those two other walls are really just crosstalk between the theme and the mechan mechanisms, right? So the mechanisms need to inform the theme. The theme needs to inform the mechanism. And you have, if you have all of those things talking to each other, you will probably have a game that people feel is seamless, is resonant. Like it's, oh, it's like that game is so, everything you do feels like you are doing the abstracted thing but not as abstract as it could be, right? So, you know, why is combat all dice? I don't know. But what if what if it was something else that felt more like combat? Like, so what if it was flicking discs at each other, um, like in catacombs, uh, where you get that kinetic feel of aiming something, of hitting something, of knocking it out? Oh, now we're talking like that actually feels like combat. To, be, to the point where... Uh, Dungeon crawl games like Descent and whatnot, uh, even um, you know Jaws of the Lion and 
games like that. I actually don't prefer those games. I prefer a game like Catacombs because I don't want my dungeon crawl to feel like I'm actually crawling. I want it to be fast and fun. Uh, and so that, to me, is a mechanism that subverts the normal purpose of that type of mechanism, puts it in a thematic world that is totally diverse uh, and divested from Crokinole, uh, you know, where the mechanic of flicking a disc comes from, or Karam. But it did it so well because everything talks to each other, everything informs each other, and the experience at the end of Catacombs is I leveled up my character to be this awesome thing, and I got really cool little new discs to play with by shooting discs at things. And it's like, totally makes sense that magic missile i get these four a bag of four discs that i can like shoot from different locations uh or whatnot right so they've used everything from flicking discs um and ported it over to dungeons and dragons basically they've realized everything from dungeons and dragons in the form of discs and flicking them uh and it's a brilliant game in that way because it subverts both of the genres that we're talking about, but also the crosstalk between the theme and the mechanics, and the mechanics and the themes supports the overall experience that you want of a fast, quick dungeon crawl in 45 minutes instead of you know several months of campaigning, right? So, anyways, that's that's how I do it. Is I start with experience, I think about the mechanics and the themes, I make sure they talk to each other. Uh, like if I'm making a game about fishing, uh, probably not rolling dice, probably actually doing something that feels like I'm putting my line into somewhere that I don't know and picking something out. So it might be a bag builder where I'm reaching into a bag and pulling out cubes, right? Because that feels like fishing. Rolling dice does not feel like fishing. So we have about 10 minutes left. So same question to the other two. Well, I just want to kind of jump in real fast um, uh, first uh, on what you're saying, because... Uh, and you had posted about that, and I've been chewing on it ever since for my own game design, because one of the things I tend to find with RPGs is you tend a lot of RPG designers um, tend to either they fixate on the setting and then they design rules to try and support the setting, or um, they have a cool idea for mechanics, and then they figure out the setting for those mechanics later, and. It's a very different thing when they are actually done organically, as you're saying. And I have to admit, like I said, I've been chewing over this thing because in designing Awesome Eights, um, well, I had several goals. But one of the goals was about um, to make the rules so easy and intuitive that it was easy for an experienced player to, you know, kind of get into it and they could focus on the role play, they could focus on the plot, and not really have to worry too much about the mechanics because they learned the mechanics so easily. But then also to draw in new players. But then you said that post about designing for experience, and it's like, okay, so how exactly do I do that? I want to provoke an experience, but I'm also designing a multi-genre game. And so, yeah, your, your post has had me chewing on things because, like I said, RPGs, we have a tendency that we're coming from one angle or the other for where we start, and we're not always integrating them as well as maybe we should. Yeah, I, I got – this is great. Uh, I am a weird or an unusual tabletop role-playing game designer that because I actually have exactly the same 
at least I think I do, as you were describing, Sen. Like, yeah. I always focus on, like, well, what's the experience I want? Even when I was just designing homebrew content for my own players at the table, you know, I don't think about, I never thought about, like, setting. Uh, in fact, I, I'm setting last person. I just, I, I, I know a lot of people who are into designing role-playing games. They want to sit you down and they want to tell you about their world. And that's super cool. And I don't care about that when I design. I just, like, wherever, put it wherever standard fantasy land i don't care like that doesn't matter right i want to create a situation where people can have a certain experiences specifically emotional uh, mm. experiences i want to engender affective responses of certain sorts um or a certain let's say a genres right um and so to design for those i have to think about well what do people do what kinds of activities do people do that accompany those feelings? And if it's you want to explore grief or like a tragedy, like think about like, I don't know, like a Bluebeard's Bride kind of game mm -hmm. or something, right? Like you, you need to, first of all, make it clear to the players up front, this is this kind of game. Uh, and then you need to create situations where people feel that way and invite people to enter into them somehow, right? So in the Bluebeard's Bride case, this is clearly kind of heavy material that is about this sort of situation and so people who want to have that if you want to have that kind of experience you play that game and it does it really well so, so dread is another or starcross to name the more recent uh, great jenga game um you know those are games that right that like the tension starcross i really love because unlike the dread horror feeling it's like the sexual tension or romantic tension that's building and building and building and then there's the release which actually isn't necessarily narratively good yeah. right it might be a kind of a disaster given the situation. You're, you're kind of like a Romeo and Juliet. You're not supposed to, and if you ever do consummate it, it might be like, the end like, of your career. Like Scully and Mulder. Right? Yeah. Will they or won't they? Well, if they do, the show's over. Right. So but I hope not, right? So it's, you know what I mean? So that I always want to start with that experience too, and then I'm like, well, what can I include in my game that would, might make people feel that way? Uh, and I love that. I mean, like another a great another great example. A big any winner recently was Alice is Missing, yeah. table uh, role playing game, right? So this is a game where people are ha they have a friend who's gone missing, but the mechanic of the game. So this is the place where mechanics can really evoke a feel. Are you're actually using your phones, texting to one another, right? But the fact that you're doing that and it's a thing we all do, and you're texting about your missing friend, and it can just automatically kind of evoke emotive reactions in a way that it wouldn't if you were just saying, okay, uh, my character pulls out their phone and sends a text, right? That's not, but because you're actually having the visceral yeah, experience of embodied, sending a text, right? right? Or 10 candles is another example yeah. of a way that can work. The other thing I do just want to jump on real fast because it's a point that we haven't necessarily hit is, you know, we've been talking game design uh, for board games and RPGs. That's not just for on the big level. That's also on, you're the DM at home making your own adventure. Yeah. You still have to send signals for that homebrew campaign of yours as far as, is this going to be a railroady campaign? Is this going to be a sandbox? You know, again, what type of mood? What type of level and everything else? Um, because that's, that leads to a lot of either satisfaction or dissatisfaction. You know, if you have a bunch of players who are used to being railroaded and you sit them down in front of a sandbox game and you haven't signaled to them it's a sandbox game and that they have way more agency than what they've had before, you can have a very, you know, uh, 
unhappy situation on both sides because the GM's like, well, why aren't they doing anything? And meanwhile, they're like, well, why isn't he telling me anything? You know? yeah, I'm so sure it, many it, of it you have had levels. that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. No, good. No. Uh, say, yeah, I mean, I'm sure many of you have had. Are we good? Sorry. Can I talk a minute about more? two minutes left. Just a heads up. Okay. Everyone. Cool. I mean, I think a good GM does that, right? Uh, they improvise on the fly or when they're doing their planning or whatever. Say like, okay, well, player one. So I'm designing today's session or I'm thinking about it. Okay, well, for player one, I have to have a shopping scene. That's I always just want to go shopping, right? And player two it wants combat. And player three wants romance. And player four wants to be like emo, tragic backstory person. And so you try and... And the, the, you know, it's like you're a cook who's inc incorporating everyone's favorite ingredients into a single dish. Uh, it does take work, and it's challenging, but uh, it's super rewarding when you can pull it off. But as designers, we don't get to have that specificity. Instead, we have to create uh, situations where people, if it's a, a role-playing game, where the GM can't has the tools they need to do that. Or I don't have as much experience on the board game side, but... Uh, Clearly, uh, designing at, for uh, multiple tables is different than just running your own game, but you do have to mm -hmm. uh, do that. Yeah. I, think we're, I think we have to start giving yeah. our how-to-reach-us things. Yeah, that sure. if you all want to wrap up, give your how-to-reach-you-who-you-are-again. Okay, I'll go first. Sure. Um, so, uh, Beth Rimmels, game designer, professional marketer, and reviewer for N-World. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at well, you can find me on Twitter at Beth Rimmels, R-I-M-M-E-L-S, or also through um, on Twitter at Awesome, the number eight, followed by S, RPG. So Awesome 8 RPG. Gwen? All right. So I'm uh, Gwendolyn Hope Marshall, and you can find me at Twitter on Twitter at Gwen G W E N underscore H underscore Marshall, uh, or uh, at Arcanist Press A R C A N I S T Press dot com, or on Twitter, uh, uh, reach out. Uh, my name is Sen Fung Lim, and you can find me on Twitter at Sen Fung Lim S E N F O O N G L I M. You can hear me weekly on well, almost weekly on Ludology podcast. And I'm also the co-host of Meeple Syrup Show, which is a weekly web show about game design and other stuff in the game industry. Uh, so that's where you can find us. Thanks very much. That's, that's a wrap. That's it. Good job, everybody. <laughs>